As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. This is the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell. Uh, with me this week is Mark Kerry, PhD. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Ali. Thank you for that. <laughs> what percentage of the letters that you receive give you the full treatment? I don't know. I mean, I, I always say that I'm not really that clever. I can barely spell PhD. So that's my sort of level of intelligence at the moment. A clever, pithy, repeatable line. <laughs> there you go. There you we go. all need him. We all need him. Also with us, giggling away, that tactics guy from The Athletic, Michael Cox. Hi, Michael. Morning. Hi. Morning, Ali. How are you? Very well, thank <laughs> you. Very, very well, thank you. That is significant personal growth. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> all good here. Uh, and, and looking forward to this episode because it's a fun topic today I think we're going to give set pieces the football tactics pod treatment that is quite a broad uh, topic broad subject but before we do that I want your reaction to some Premier League news its newest manager is Unai Emery uh, formerly of Sevilla then Villarreal and now in at Aston Villa what are your thoughts Michael? (laughs) Yeah he also coached David Villa back in the day Um, (laughs) yeah interesting one I mean I think you know, under under uh, Gerard, I think defensively they haven't been particularly well organised. At times, they haven't had that much of a clear attacking game plan. Emery is a very meticulous manager. Um, you know, a real tactician. I think sometimes a little bit too much so in his time with Arsenal. I think he was probably a bit too flexible, a bit too willing to to change his approach based upon the opposition. But it's 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 a good appointment for Villa. I mean, it's one of those appointments that sums up how strong the Premier League is these days. I mean, this is a guy who was in the Champions League semi-final last year and he's gone to a club who, off the top of my head, haven't finished in the top half of the Premier League for about a decade. Mm. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a good appointment and they've got a good squad and should be doing better than they have been doing, I think it's fair to say. Are there any answers, conclusions on on how he has been so successful in the Europa League specifically and 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 the Champions League, albeit with fewer actual trophies. Um, how does a manager get?
get so good at, at knockout football while also performing pretty well in, in league football as well? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it is extraordinary his run in, in the European competitions. I think his management style is probably more suited to knockout competitions than league football. I, I just think he's quite old school. Um, he's quite defensive. I think he's probably someone who enjoys working towards a particular fixture in terms of scouting the opposition and, and picking his team accordingly. Whereas his teams have, have done okay in the league. Um, but he's not really a, he hasn't really been a, a manager who's who's ever been a contender for the league, really, aside from when he was at PSG. Um, so yeah, I just think it suits him more. I think of him a bit like Rafa Benitez. You know, back in the day, obviously both Spanish managers, but maybe not typical of Spanish football. I think maybe a bit more Italian in style. Yeah, I mean, Michael mentioned before of how meticulous he is and sort of intense, I think, in, in the way that he manages as well. And I think it's interesting to look at how long he's actually been in each job in his managerial career. I think maximum three, maybe four at a push kind of years, which mm-hmm. may be sort of a testament to how intense he is. And it might be a little bit too much for the players. And I found a, a quote from um, the famous Joaquin um, from when he was at Valencia. And he said that Emery put on so many videos, I ran out of popcorn. He's obsessed <laughs> with football. It's practically an illness. He's one of the best managers I've had. I worked with him for three years, but I couldn't handle a fourth. So I think there's maybe just something to be said about how long he's at each club. That's very interesting. And just a quick one on on him at Arsenal, Michael. What what is the sort of what's the correct assessment of his time at Arsenal? Because you will find some differing views. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a tough job to take on. Not just coming after Wenger, but I think the club, in terms of the squad, I think was a bit of a shambles at that point. Really, um, they, yeah, they had a, a decent, an unconvincing start, but picking up results, and then I think it steadily went downhill. Really, after probably the the first six months or so. And at the end, I think the general, the thing most people would agree on was I don't think he really had a set philosophy in terms of where he was taking the club. And I think you probably do need that for a top six club in particular. If you come in to a side in village situation at the moment, I think you can probably get away with being a bit more pragmatic. Um, but yeah, he's a very good manager, very experienced manager. And, um, you know, with all due respect to, to Dean Smith and Steven Gerrard, who both did a good job in, in certain parts of their tenure. You look at Emery's achievements and it's a significant step up really from what Villa have had in, in recent years. This episode is about set pieces. Uh, we're going to try and nail down exactly what counts as a set piece in statistical terms. Uh, we're going to chat about the evolution of them, their relevance in the current game uh, and whether or not there are more set piece goals than in the old days. Uh, We'll take a quick look at teams which are performing well on this front and poorly. Uh, We're not, in this episode, going to sort of break down a ton of specific creative set-piece routines like England's love train at the 2018 World Cup. But we have got something like that planned for the future. Uh, First, Michael, how do you define a set-piece goal? I didn't even realise that this was a discussion until about 48 hours ago. And now I think Mm. it's it's one of the great polemic issues of our time. (laughs) Yeah, we'd, uh, I was talking to Jack Pitt-Brook, who's the Athletics uh, England reporter, and he was saying that in a recent international break, there was a debate amongst the press pack on precisely what constitutes a set-piece goal because someone had said England hadn't scored from open play since a certain time and someone took that to just mean from penalties or free kicks, uh, direct free kicks, and others thought that if you scored a header from a corner that wasn't a set piece goal because it wasn't kicked directly from the set piece into the goal (laughs) 
which I right. think to to most people that uh, definition would be a little bit peculiar. Correct, certainly to me. Uh, so what what do you think defines a set piece goal? Well, I don't really know. I don't know where the cut off point is. It's I rat- mean, you're rattled. Yeah, I mean, earlier in the season, <laughs> I did. Uh, was it earlier this season? Maybe it was last season. I think it was last season. I did an article about. I thought there was a lot of goals from second phases of set pieces. So, you know, where, where the corner would be clear, come in, it would be cleared to the edge of the box. Maybe there'd be one or two passes and then a second cross into the box. And I think those situations are quite hard for teams to defend because the opposition usually have their best heads of the ball forward, but the opposition don't have a kind of set marking system and, and a kind of defined organisation. So I don't know whether goals like that would be considered set piece goals. Mark, it doesn't really matter what we think because the, the data companies rule the world now. Uh, how do Opta define a set-piece goal? Yeah, I put it to them. Um, and forgive me for just reading it out, but it's because of the strict criteria, it's going to have to be uh, word for word. And they came back with the following. So set-piece goals or shots are those where the ball starts from a dead ball situation, such as a corner, a free kick, a penalty, or a throw-in, and results in a shot before the phase of play has broken down into open play. And I guess throughout the rest of this episode, we can sort of decide whether we include penalties within what we're talking about more broadly about set pieces, but that's fine. It says that the exact point at which it becomes open play is usually clear, but set pieces and corners which are cleared and then the ball is put straight back into the penalty area. So what Michael's talking about there in terms of what we deem to be a second phase, they are still deemed to be part of the set play as the defending team is still positioned to deal with the set mm. play. So in my mind, you could almost have it as, yeah, the the defending team knocks the ball out, uh, two players maybe play it between them wide and the opposition is still in their set defence and maybe 10 seconds could go by, that ball is then delivered again. Basically, the criteria is what stage in duration do you then not deem it a, a set mm. play? But feasibly, it could be 10 seconds after the initial um, set piece is taken. That is still a set piece, if that makes sense. That's quite interesting because I, I figured that there would ha- basically a, a time limit, a duration after which a set piece was taken where it was still considered you know, the set piece situation, even if it was a second phase, dare I say, it, even if it was a third phase because crosses can come back in pretty quickly. And I guess I felt that that there would be a set time frame in order to basically make it consistent. What you're suggesting there, which I hadn't really considered, is that actually there is a subjective aspect to this based on those who are logging every independent game. It's, it is, I think from what you're saying, up to whoever is logging each game for a data company. Uh, it's up to them whether they think it's, it's still the, the set piece phase or whether play has, has broken down into open play. Yeah, and I think they try and, obviously in all the data companies, they try and make the criteria as strict and as stringent as possible so that there is, they minimise subjectivity. But I suppose you're right. And they, they did say that, yeah, it's usually clear when that is, um, which would, for the most part would be if the, the ball is headed away and then you maybe start a, a counter-attack, for example, it's, it's obviously clear. There'll be those uh, edge cases where it is a little bit more subjective. Hopefully there'll be you know, minimal so that we get good data and reliable data. But yeah, it's more uh, nuanced than, than maybe we thought. And and there's there's other kind of debates to be had. I mean, a quickly taken throw in, for example, comes from a mm. kind of restart. But I, if it's quickly taken in just getting on with the game, I wouldn't really call it a set piece. Or if a team gets a free kick for offside, for example, in their own half and everyone's still in the same position, 
and they launch it long and there's a, a move from that. I mean, is that a set piece goal? I'd say probably not, but in terms mm. of number of actions after the, the dead ball, after the restart. So yeah, I think the categorization is, is quite interesting. I mean, the pure dictionary definition of set piece uh, is a carefully organised and practised move in a team game by which the ball is returned to play as at a scrum or free kick. So quickly take and throw in, Michael, that that really does shroud, that's now shrouded in uncertainty. Yeah, I think I'm right in saying a long time ago, do you remember that goal that, uh, that incredible goal that Papi Cisse scored at Stanford Bridge, the kind of really dramatically swerving goal? Cisse! I think I'm right in saying that because that came as a throw, it was defined as a set-piece goal by certain data companies. And I can't remember why this. there was a debate about this, but I do remember someone on, on Twitter going absolutely mental at the idea this was a, <laughs> a, you know, to use your definition, this was a pre-planned move. Um, so, yeah, clearly there are different interpretations of what set-piece means. But you do have to have these sorts of frameworks, right? If we want data stats on the breadth of football that we do and every single game now you know you need a framework and of course there might be the odd one that that sort of falls through the cracks so to speak and and seems a bit ridiculous but uh, I think I'm pretty happy about about the definition and how they are categorized one thing that's uh, a little peculiar Michael is that an own goal scored from a set piece situation doesn't count towards a team's set piece shots or goal stats which I only realised thanks to our colleague Ahmed Walid uh, I was writing on the uh, on the group chat yesterday about the fact that Manchester United haven't scored a goal from a set piece this season per Opta Analyst so they've scored 14 goals from open play um, but Ahmed pointed out they did score from a corner against Brighton but it was an own goal so that doesn't there's not a tick in the set piece goal box, which seems a little peculiar. Own goals are, are treated differently, aren't they, in general? Yeah, it's like almost like they're treated as a kind of world of their own. Um, whereas, yeah, all own goals are scored either from open play or a set piece. You could have a really good open play move that just happens to end in an own goal. I do think sometimes... But we... then it gets just basically just gets ignored in yeah, statistical terms. You're right. It is funny. I mean, there is a... There is something funny about own goals. I mean, some own goals are just someone booting the ball in their own net f- under no pressure. But a lot of the time, they're basically forced by it, like a really good ball across the six-yard box, for example. So, yeah, we shouldn't discount them. Hmm. I would say in the modern game, an own goal is almost never someone just booting the ball into their own hmm. net under no pressure at all. Um, I'm struggling to think of the last one I saw. So, yeah, you're right. Was it Virginie of uh, Sunderland that... That, I feel like that was yeah. the last like viral Premier League going goal. That was a good one. That was a very good one, yeah. Have we had a, a Jamie Poddock, Pollock for the modern era? I can't think of <laughs> it, one. Which is weird because there's more chance now a goal, like a, a defender is going to be playing a back pass to the goalkeeper as they're building up. But we haven't seen any, um, you know. Lee Dixon was a classic one, wasn't it? Was, it? was it Ipswich or someone like that? But that was before the back pass rule, so I think he was trying to lob it to David Seaman's hands and he floated it over his head. So maybe the, you know, there's been a change in that respect as well. And a pure set-piece own goal would have to be the, was it Peter Enkelman at Aston Villa? Yeah. That was from a throw. That is absolutely pure. There's no intervention from Birmingham City there. So uh, And, should, and shouldn't have counted, should it? Because the keeper shouldn't didn't, have counted. keeper didn't get a touch, really. Maybe a little one off the stud. Who, who's to say? Who can say? I don't know. I th- uh, I th- I'll be. I think the referee forgot the rules in that 
<laughs> no, genuinely, I do. I don't think he had judged that Inkelman had touched it. I think he was just like, well, they've thrown it in their own goal. That's an own goal. Which, to be fair, I think if you throw it in your own goal, it should be an own goal. It shouldn't be a corner, should it? <laughs> it's your own fault. Hard to argue with that. I'd be interested to hear what uh, the listeners think about set piece definitions um either commenting on the uh on the podcast on the athletic site and app you can do that or, or tweeting us if you think there's anything that we've missed when discussing the definition thereof now we're going to talk about the evolution if you will or, or trends uh, and in particular linking set pieces with what we might broadly call mark the the analytics movement um michael i feel like the discussion of set pieces and analytics goes somewhat hand in hand. In fact, I've got the word Micheland ringing in my ears as I discuss it. Do you think it's fair to link the two? Yeah, I think it probably is. I mean, a few weeks ago, we had Rory Smith on here to talk about his book. And um, I think the subtitle of his book is uh, How Data Has Changed the Game Forever. Uh, and my slight objection was, I'm, I'm not sure it has changed the way the game is played. But the caveat is, I think we all agree that on set pieces there has been a big difference. And if you go back to about 10 years ago, when I guess the first modern books about analytics and data and football were being written, one of the key findings was that basically corners didn't produce many goals. It was something like two or 3% of corners produced goals, which I think is a surprise to those of us who kind of watch match of the day every weekend and see two or three goals from corners. But I think we probably interpreted that wrongly. I, I think the lesson from that was not corners are useless, don't put any focus on them. It was that, not enough focus was being put on corners and that if you did, you could gain an advantage. Um, and it's notable, I mean, Mitchelland obviously have links with Brentford. Brentford, uh, I think of all the teams in the Premier League are the ones who are most associated with their use of data. And whilst they do play some very good football in open play, probably rely on set pieces more than anyone. I mean, throws, they, they've clearly put a big emphasis on. They're very good at keeping the ball alive, kind of the second phase of corners and that kind of thing. So yeah, I, I think um, because it's a bit of a closed situation in the game, you can probably plan more. And in general, we've seen, I mean, there's loads of areas now where you have specialist coaches, but it feels like almost every club seems to have a, a specialist set piece coach now, which I, I don't think was the case 10 years ago. This is the thing as well. So you said about about three, two to three, maybe sometimes four percent of corners, for example, result in a goal. But if you were to broaden it out, just in terms of the proportion of goals, of the total goals throughout a, a season that are scored via a set piece, you're talking somewhere between a quarter and a third. So it almost begs the question: Why hasn't more attention been paid to it in all of the the times gone by? Because it's such a key part of the game um, and similarly yeah, Michelin comes to mind uh, to me as well I actually looked into it it was the 2014-15 season and they clearly exploited what was sort of an untapped uh, value uh, and they scored 25 goals from set pieces that season the nearest after that was 11 so it shows just how much they could get a really easy edge I mean that if you said that a single player had scored 25 goals for the season, you'd say they were absolutely on mm. fire. So completely untapped and clearly now starting to, to get utilised more. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Because albeit a low proportion of corners ended in goals, Michael, it's such a, a low scoring sport. I, I actually think if that would have surprised some people, I think what would also surprise some people, perhaps even now, is what a low proportion of goals from open play get scored in, in football matches. Like the Premier League has, most teams have played 11 games now. And looking at Opta Analyst's site, there's only seven teams that have scored more than one open play goal per game 
there's uh, 11 teams who score who have scored so far this season small sample size etc less than one goal from open play per game so you know it's it, it was obvious that trying to improve set pieces given the nature of them was going to to perhaps be a uh, an easy edge and you know it was something that people like Ted Knutson were talking about well before set piece coaches became the norm uh, and now we have a lot of specialist coaches at mark and a lot of them are set piece related um, rather than open play related i guess you do have in possession and out of possession coaches um specialists now in the game but you also have famously throw-in coaches. Uh, I've definitely seen the title of restarts coaches, which kind of is a is a, a catch-all, I guess, for set-piece situations, um, throw-ins and kickoffs, etc. like that. Is this just down to these situations being easier to control, I guess, less random than the chaos of, of general play? You know, Rory spoke about the proportion of... of uh, Americans in the analytics space and it strikes me that these situations are the closest that football gets to American sports such as NFL and baseball where almost every play is a set play situation with very little open play. Yeah I think that's completely fair to say Um, you know exactly as you say it's such a closed skill that it again it begs the question why hasn't this been done sooner um, in terms of having these specialist coaches because you can have more I guess predictive power more control over it from a, as you say from an offensive and defensive perspective to to have that control and see where you can uh, again get the edge and you know we're talking about analytics and it's always good to see how much you can either predict what's going on or look at the proportion of goals and things like that but ultimately this is a, a tactical change you talk about set piece coaches and changing things tactically you have to it's all very well having the numbers and knowing that you can expose a certain area of the pitch but you have got to obviously then um, do it do it on the pitch and I, I read a, an interesting article um, on Statsbomb from Statsbomb that sort of showed this in just four simple stages of just again largely tactically just identifying if you're the, the attacking team here identifying identifying the defensive scheme, figuring out how to break the scheme, which is obviously the the key challenge. It's one thing knowing that there's a, a weakness, but there's the other thing exploiting it. Obviously, spend some time training that that play on the training pitch and obviously then go and execute it. There's quite a lot of steps bef- from actually identifying where an issue or you know a gap might be tactically to then actually be the one to to go and score a goal on, on the match day when the team is trying to stop you from also doing that. So yes, you can find a lot of these uh, advantages, but doing it, I guess, is another thing. And a big part of the analytics conversation, Michael, has been about translating it into reality, basically, and through coaching or messaging, whatever that is, the, the translation of analytical, statistical, data-based processes and objectives and, and getting that through to players. Um, one of the, th- the things that was often said about set-piece coaching was that players don't like it. They don't want to stand in set positions in the cold and practice set piece after set piece and maybe they don't want to sit and watch video of set piece after set piece that at at first anyway was something that was always brought up as like nah this won't work they won't have it yeah that is true but I think when it when one comes off the players really love it don't they like I don't know whether you saw um Monday Night Football, Jamie Carragher looked at Villa's opening goal at the weekend and I really liked his analysis of the celebration. Like Some of them were running <laughs> yeah, to the set-piece yeah. coach, some of them to the taker. It was, I mean, when it comes off, it must feel like really, really, you know, great, great job satisfaction in that moment, I guess. I, I wonder as well whether 
if it is the the same manager or the same coach kind of already within the club, whether the the players get a little bit bored by thinking like, oh, we've just done a session. But by having a, a specialist coach come in, does it kind of add an element of freshness, if that makes sense, where it's like, okay, well, this is a new session with a new person with new ideas, uh, you know, and they are deemed to be a specialist. Maybe I should listen to them. Because as you say, there are so many now at the the top end. So obviously Liverpool have hired Thomas Granemark as a throwing coach. Tottenham have got Gianni Vio. Arsenal, we've got Nicola Jovert, who I think was previously at Brentford, um, Manchester United, Eric Ramsey, Aston Villa, Austin McPhee. Loads of these different coaches who are getting more and more, I guess, prominence on on the bench. And is it AFC Wimbledon? You'll know better than me, um, Ali, in particular. Whether have they got a substitute coach now? <laughs> they did. They did last season. Yeah, they they um, they employed someone who had done. Uh, a lot of research on substitutions and who basically felt like there was an edge to be had here where other edges had maybe become blunter across the game uh, in the sense that, you know, you can change 30% as it was last season of your outfield players. You can now change 50% of your outfield players uh, and were teams getting the most out of that? This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hello, it's Kate Borsay, Lindsay Hooper and Hayley McQueen here, otherwise known as The Offside Rule. We have a very special show. It's been 10 years of The Offside Rule. If you've been enjoying it over the last decade, you can get some extra insight. Yes, we have a really good chat about how the industry has changed in the 10 years and chat as well about some of the highs of recording a podcast as an only female trio in the football world and some of the lows as well. So join us for fun. We're also joined by Harriet Drudge and Laura Williamson from The Athletic. So check it out. That's The Offside Rule. I also should say that, you know, having brought up this 
sense of players not wanting to do it. I, I think that's in the past now. I don't have any evidence to support this, but I feel like the modern generation of players and certainly the next one coming through, it won't be as much of a thing to, to be inherently anti-data, anti-specialist coaches, anti training set pieces and watching video because I think it's just become so normalised now so uh, I didn't want to, to make it sound like I thought that was actually the case but I just wanted to flag it as something that had had certainly been been brought up uh, a few years ago. The big question Mark is do the stats reflect that set piece goals have become more prevalent in the sport since set piece routines became you know more practised? Yeah, well, yeah, very good question. I mean, what I wanted to do was to go back, especially in the Premier League, um, all the way back to the start of the Premier League and really get an overarching, broad uh, view of the, the change over time. But the only data that I could get my hands on was from yeah the Premier League from the 2006-07 season onwards. So you have to bear with me on that. Um, and what I'm going to do is exclude penalties here as well, because, again, part of the debate, like I mentioned before, yes, they are a set piece, of course they are, but... I'm st- I don't know about you guys, I'm, st- I'm thinking of it in terms of free kicks, corners and uh, indirect free kicks as well. So taking that, uh, at the, so basically the, the peak of set piece goals in the period that I mentioned from the 2006-07 season was the 2009-10 season, 2010-11 season with 27 and 28% of all goals scored coming from set pieces, which I think is is pretty high and I'm reliably informed that Stoke City came into the Premier League in 2008-9 so correlation is not causation but there may have been quite an influence to to proceedings there after they've maybe had their first season to get settled even though I know that they did it from their first season and really uh, honed their craft from the the second and third (laughs) season Um, and from for sort of wider context in the past three or four seasons that proportion of, of goal scored from set piece in the Premier League is close to 20 to 22%. So it shows that there was a real sort of spike in that season. Um, so that's all of the, the data that I could get my hands on. Interesting. So actually looking at the numbers from 2012 onwards, when we're past the uh, the Tony Pulis, <laughs> poten- potentially Pulis-inspired spike, from 2012 onwards, Michael, you're looking at 24, 23, 22% of all goals being scored by set piece incredibly consistently, apart from one season in 2021 when it was down at, at 19%. So the answer is no. The percentage of goals scored from set piece situations hasn't really risen uh, at all. Uh, and I guess there might be something in the fact that team's ability to defend set pieces and practice defending set pieces, that, that ability may have moved up in line with the more thoughtful routines and deliveries. So it was down in the behind closed doors season, right? Um, mm. Is that interesting? Makes you think. Were there fewer free kicks given that season? Were teams less nervous going away to Sheffield United because they didn't have a crowd roaring as soon as Sheffield United got a corner? Don't know. Is, is therefore a set piece goal more likely to be sucked in by the home fans. <laughs> I think that's spot on, yeah. I think that, yeah, I, yeah. In, instinctively that makes sense to me. Yeah. That 2% difference is basically the goalkeepers being able to concentrate a bit more because they don't have some blokes in the front row trying to distract them. <laughs> Having been at some non-league games with Michael Cox, I know that he's very good at distracting goalkeepers when they're trying to set up their wall. <laughs> 
That is that is my favourite thing about non-league football. <laughs> Just always telling them they should have one more in the wall. I think is uh, a joy you don't get at Premier League level. What about if we break it down into the type of set-piece goal? Because, you know, Mark, scoring a direct kick strikes me as a very different thing to scoring a header from a corner. So um, in terms of direct free kicks, goals from those situations, goals from corners, are there any trends of interest? Goals from long throws? Can we can we tell if, if any of these subsets of the set-piece discussion have uh, have led to more goals in the last 10 years or so? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the the volume of direct free kicks, at least I did something on this uh, fairly recently for a piece, and I looked across Europe's top five leagues to just see the trend of yeah the volume of free kicks. And overall, there was a kind of a downward trend um, per game of the, the number of free kicks, which interestingly less so in the the Premier League ever so slightly, which might be due to fewer fouls being committed outside the the area um, or you know an area to take a direct free kick or it might be as we mentioned before the rise of analytics has maybe influenced the decision making on the pitch where people are less are going to be very aware not to commit a foul in those what could be deemed to be a lucrative area so maybe another small win for, for the analytics movement there um, but in terms of the conversion rate there's not really too much to pick out as a pattern in terms of the the free kick success uh, across Europe, which I guess does make sense. There's so many variables to to take into account because it is such a close skill. Just the quality of the taker is so so variable. Um, I know we did a, an episode on that um, in the past as well, so certainly check that one out. But not too many trends um, from a free kick perspective, at least. Michael, surely goals from long throws had a spike in the in the Pulis Delap Stoke era. Then I reckon settled down a little bit. But I reckon there might have been a little spike in the last few years, particularly Brentford, I know, have nicked a, a couple of a couple of bonus goals from those situations in the last season or two. Yeah, I've seen a few, I suppose, bigger teams doing doing it as well. Thomas Partey has been been coming over to to take uh, long throw-ins from near the corner flags. Um so yeah, there's there's been a there does seem to have been a bit of a rise. I always like Gareth Bale doing them. He, I don't know whether he still does them for Wales, but he's got a really good long throw. Maybe we'll see that at the World Cup. Also on that, I, I looked at since the start of last season, just how many shots have developed from long throws. And unsurprisingly, Brentford are the highest. 27 shots from long throws. And there's only one other team, and I'm going to put it to both of you, who is on double figures outside of Brentford. And it sort of surprised me. Could you guys? Do you guys have any teams off the top of your head who also had a high volume of shots from long throws I was going to guess Liverpool but I don't think that would surprise you so I think it probably isn't the answer <clears throat> I'll go with West Ham United trying to West trying Ham to United hit, trying to hit are, Suchek I reckon yeah they are fourth on the on the list but Southampton was the only one um, who was second on the league which surprised me I must say I didn't notice I, I could be right. About this point last season, I just checked the stats for throw-ins and I noticed that Southampton's fullbacks had taken first and second most throw-ins in the league. And I wonder whether that was to do with the way that they press and kind of box teams in towards the side. So maybe they just won more throw-ins? I don't know. Probably not, but could be something in that. While, while we're on the subject of teams who currently do long throws, got to give a shout out to uh, Liverpool women's player Megan Campbell who I think has the best long throw 
in all of football at the moment. I mean, it's just extraordinary. If you're listening to this and haven't seen them, go on YouTube. There's obviously a couple of compilations. I mean, she regularly regularly hits kind of the penalty spot or, or that kind of area. It's really, really quite impressive. She doesn't really have the... I think the thing with Delat was the flatness of the trajectory was really difficult. This is a bit more loopy, but I don't think there's another player in the men's or women's game who, who can do what she does. And, and she's heading to the World Cup as well with Ireland. Um, who've actually been given a very tough draw. So maybe they'll need to rely on set pieces to get a few uh, shocks in. The, the only name I can offer is Ben Tozer, who plays for Wrexham. Um, ben Tozer got, per transfer mark, seven assists in the 2021 season, uh, where Cheltenham Town, his club, won promotion from League Two. And it was something we spoke about on a, on a separate EFL-flavoured podcast quite a lot, was that... Toza's long throws were, were basically the best creator of chances individually in League Two. Like his long throws created more chances than the most creative number 10, let's say, uh, and led to, to, to arguably more goals as well. Um, Wrexham took him on their uh, Ryan Reynolds journey with them and uh, his... The amount of goals that they're scoring from long throws is, is absolutely ridiculous. It's obviously his it's his centre back partners that tend to benefit from it. I think I think Aaron Hayden, the other centre back, has something ridiculous like seven league goals already in fifteen games and playing at centre back for Wrexham. So yeah, Ben Toes is the one to watch if you like a, a proper long throw in the men's game. Um okay, well I want to talk about execution really and try and work out what makes a set piece a good set piece. Michael, Mark, what's most important here? So many components to it. Is it the manager and their view of set pieces and and how important they think they are and how much of a focus and emphasis they put on them? Is it a club's playing philosophy? Do direct teams that pack their team with big strapping players tend to do better from set pieces, do we think? Is it the staff or the set piece coach and the quality of, of them? Is it the the set piece takers skill in in delivering the ball there's so much that comes into it here yeah there is uh one thing i was looking at the stats i found quite interesting was just the basic numbers in terms of where the corners were regarded as successful or unsuccessful and that basically just means was it a teammate who got the the first touch and there's a huge variation i mean fulham so far this season they've had 54 percent of their corners have been deemed as successful and Leicester's is down at 16%. Mm. And I was staggered by the difference. I mean, that's just two completely different worlds. Um, small sample size, etc. And it doesn't tell us what the outcome of that touch was. Um, and you can't tell whether that's to do with the taker or whether players are just better at winning it. But I think there's probably a decent argument that it's about the taking in that situation. Um, but yeah, I was amazed at the variation. 54% to 16%. Um there's another interesting thing, which is obviously the style of the corner in terms of whether they're in-swingers or out-swingers. Um, again, this varies massively. Arsenal are really keen on in-swingers. Uh, 44 in-swingers this season, only one out-swinger. Liverpool are kind of the opposite. Um, 24 in-swingers, but twice as many out-swingers, or over twice as many, 50. Um, and Southampton are a completely different case because it's always in-swing from the left and out-swing from the right because James Ward-Prowse takes every corner. Um, so that yeah, there's loads of interesting points in just the taking of the corners there. I think yeah, this is a an interesting point to, to make, and it's something that we did last year as a as a piece myself and and Andy Jones. Uh, 
did a piece called Why Outswinging Corners Lead to More Chances But Inswingers Lead to More Goals. Um, and I do think it is an interesting one. It was, I think it's based on a, uh, a paper by Paul Power. Um, but I contacted Statsbomb to try and get a little bit more sort of insight and looked at the success of each corner type uh, across the top five European leagues since 19, uh, the 2019-20 season and found that in-swinging corners have a lower completion success, so 30%, compared with out-swinging corners, which were at 42%, in terms of getting that first contact and, and reaching a teammate, which, of course, does make sense because you're in sort of putting it into a less congested area. But the, the research found that in-swingers uh, are more dangerous than out-swingers, which, again, makes sense. So, again, putting it to the numbers, out-swingers have a greater chance of leading to a shot at about 21%, compared to just less than uh, 19% um, for the other one. But shots taken from in-swingers are significantly more likely to result in a goal. Um, so almost double the chance of leading to a goal from in-swingers because it's just a higher XG value simply, isn't it? They're closer to the goal. So it's just, I guess it's that element of, of risk and reward. Do you want to get first contact and maybe then you know, hedge your bets on whether that, that shot will be a, a good one, maybe from a little bit of a, a greater distance or get it in the mixer basically and know that it's going to be a higher probability of, of going in if it is to then be successful. But then I'd have thought that if that was uh, a given, a truth, and that those who study analytics and data would, would kind of know that and accept that, in my head then we'd get to a point where eventually all teams would take the same approach, Michael, because you'd work out that, okay, the, the quality of the chance we get from the in-swinger is worth having fewer shots from these situations. But at the top of the in-swinging chart is Arsenal, who we know love a bit of data, so much so they bought a whole data company a few years back. And at the other end of the spectrum, with the 66% outswingers are Liverpool, who we also know love a bit of data. So that I find that really interesting. And maybe it, I'm being stupid and there's something to do with, well, that's because Liverpool's set-piece taker is a natural outswinger and, and Arsenal's is a natural inswinger. But teams have more than one set-piece taker with more than one preferred foot these days, don't they? Yeah, and obviously you take corners from both sides. Yeah. So I think even if you... Um... Yeah, no, it's deliberate, it, clearly deliberate um, from both of them. So, yeah, I mean, it goes to, um, again, it, it probably goes back to what we said about has analytics changed the game? I mean, it is influencing these teams' styles, but I wonder whether, I mean, is set-piece taking significantly different now? I mean, clearly teams put more focus on it, but stylistically there st still seems to be a great variation. Um, like you say, actually, while we're on, while we're on this point, that wasn't the case at the women's Euros, where I would guess ninety-five percent of corners were in swingers. If like maybe even more, you barely saw an outswinger. I assume just because, to be frank, because the players are smaller, the goalkeepers are smaller. I think there's more chance if you just put the ball into the six-yard box. I think you, it's a decent chance it ends up in the net rather than you know swinging it out towards the penalty spot and having a a powerful header. Um, so yeah, that's quite an interesting difference between. Uh, Competitions, and I also looked at the stats in terms of in swinging, out swinging, um, in terms of what teams had to face in the Premier League this year, and the team by a fair distance that faced the highest percentage of in swinging corners was Leicester City, and they're also the team whose I think goalkeeper has been most under fire 
you know, most questioned this season. So I wonder whether teams were thinking we'll just get it in and around Danny Ward because he's, you know, maybe not confident, not going to come for them, need to test him quickly. So, yeah, there's the more you dig into the stats, the more there's actually just a huge variety of approaches. One interesting case study, uh, maybe bad to overreact to this and say that this is this is definitive, but, but in the championship, Millwall have scored 13 goals from set pieces. The next best is seven. So they're miles clear in terms of set piece goals. That has been a huge part of their uh, attacking diet, shall we say, over the last few years. They have and always have had over the last few years a ton of very tall dudes, basically, m- much more so than other teams in the championship. And I noticed... And well, therefore they score a lot of goals from set pieces. But I noticed uh, that they take almost entirely outswinging corners. So I guess as I'm talking, I'm wondering whether if you think you have the height advantage, it's worth going for the sort of volume approach of okay, we're going to swing it outwards to a position that's further out from the goal. Not necessarily because we're going to think that we're going to score that direct header, but because we're pretty confident that we're going to have a high proportion of first contact. And if we can just keep the ball in the box, as we know from set-piece situations, it can go anywhere. If we've got people waiting for the flick and running off the flick, then we can really um, uh, kind of increase our chances of scoring. It'd be good to hear what people think. Um, tweet us, comment on the on the site. Uh, these are, are conversations that we really enjoy having and we like to make you part of them as well. In terms of specifics in the Premier League this season, Michael, are there any teams that you've seen this season and thought, yeah, yeah, they're doing something, they're doing something interesting and effective from set piece situations? Yeah, I've been impressed by Fulham this season, and I've I've written about this uh, probably a couple of months ago now. They seem to have worked out that because teams are putting more and more players in the near post zone on the edge of the six-yard box now and just using maybe one or two blockers in deeper positions, there's just more room for what I'd almost call a a pullback from a corner um, and more license for kind of block-offs and creating decent opportunities with volleys rather than headers. I know Mitrovic obviously has been a target for a couple of those volleys. I mean, there's always been block-offs and and that kind of thing, but because there is, I think, more space in that zone now, it means you can create quite good chances. The slight irony was that Brentford did exactly the same thing against them with a goal from Norgard, I think, an outswinging corner and a really crisp volley. Um, So, yeah, it feels like we've seen a few more of those kind of routines. Creating a shot you know, with a foot rather than a head from a corner feels quite unusual to me. Mm. Um, So yeah, I've been interested by that. To look at the numbers, Fulham actually have the fewest set plays per goal of any Premier Premier League team so far this season, which again, probably skewed by, you know, a small sample size and by the outcome of it being a goal, but they basically needed the fewest set pieces to actually score a goal, which is interesting to see. So they are clearly doing well. Um, I think... We, we spoke about Spurs before in terms of Gianno Vio um, being so key to the way that they have these different routines. But I think one which we've seen, which they've scored a couple of goals from, is profited from sort of having a, a ball to the, the near post, flicked on to the back post. I think Harry Kane's profited through a couple of those as well. So um, shows that it's coming into full effect from what they're doing on the training ground. I think Liam Tharm did an excellent piece on that, um, looking at that in the summer of what sort of the the playbook of what Vio sort of had to offer. I think there's so many different ones that he, that he has sort of in his uh, in his armory. So 
shows that, yeah, Spurs are certainly doing well as well, and that's backed up by the numbers. Uh, on the Opta Analyst site, out of the top five European leagues, uh, the team with the, the highest expected goals number from set-piece situations is Newcastle United. Uh, they've scored four set-piece goals from what Opta reckons 6.22 uh, expected. The next best in the league is Arsenal with 4.75 expected. So the gap between first and second, Newcastle and Arsenal, is basically the same between Arsenal and, and the team in sort of 10th or 11th for, for set-piece XG. So um, that might be something to watch, Mark. Would that mean that we'd expect Newcastle to probably start racking up a few more goals from corners or does it not work quite the same for set-piece situations because they're quite chaotic? Yeah, certainly an element of that. I think also just looking at totals as well, I think Newcastle had more opportunities to to build up that XG. I think they've had the most, certainly in the Premier League, had the most set pieces taken of anyone. So it probably rack up a little bit there. But it's also interesting to see that they have the highest proportion of their total XG that result from a set play as well. So 32% of their XG has been, as a share, been from um, from set plays, which is does show that there's sort of some signal there as well. And I guess without being too kind of primal about it in the way that I'm doing a sort of analysis, I think it's also just interesting, like we spoke about before with the outswing and the inswinging, of just how much, what proportion of the the set pieces that are taken actually do result in a shot. Because, yeah, I guess without getting philosophical, what is, the, what is it the famous, somewhat famous phrase of you you miss 100% of the shots that you don't mm. take? So basically you have to take a shot to, uh, to obviously rack up the XG. So... I looked at the highest percentage of set plays that resulted in shots and Crystal Palace were actually at the top, just edging above Newcastle. So it shows probably which is the the big dudes thing where they're probably just getting first contact. But still interesting to see that Newcastle followed by Fulham actually are getting um, the sort of the highest proportion there. So clearly they're doing doing well in that regard. In terms of the quality of the, the shots taken from, from corners at least, Arsenal, Spurs and West Ham all have the highest XG per corner about 0.06 so you know if they took 100 corners you expect them to score about six goals based on the quality of chances they're creating so in terms of quality uh, those three are doing well mm. in terms of pure goals I thought I'd flag up Monaco in League R they've scored nine set piece goals which is the best in the top five European leagues of next best are Fulham Spurs Juventus, Napoli and Rio Vallecano on, on seven. Um, in terms of, of those who are defending them very well, well, uh, Michael, in the top five leagues, there are six teams that haven't conceded from a set-piece goal so far this season. Uh, FC Barcelona in Spain, Athletic Club in Spain haven't scored or conceded from a set-piece situation. Freiburg in the Bundesliga, PSG in France, uh, Sampdoria in Italy, and in the Premier League, it's uh, it's West Ham who also project pretty well generally from set-piece situations. Yeah, credit to West Ham as well because I had a quick look at the stats and West Ham seem to actually concede or allow the opposition quite a lot of corners. They've got a lot to defend, whereas obviously PSG and Barcelona don't. So they are very strong at set-pieces and it may be interesting as well that the team in the Premier League who have conceded the most number of goals from set-pieces is Bournemouth. And it's interesting that the game on Monday night was Bournemouth against West Ham and uh, the opening goal, sure enough, came from West Ham scoring from a set piece. Absolutely. Uh, In terms of teams who need to do better, well, Manchester United, as discussed, 
have or haven't scored from a set-piece situation, depending on, on your thoughts on own goals. Uh, Wolves haven't scored per Opta from a set-piece goal this season. Uh, Athletic, as mentioned, and Torino in Italy, those are the, the teams who really need to get their, their acts together. Interestingly, Chelsea have the lowest set-piece XG in the Premier League per the Opta analyst. Uh, let's move away from club football and just touch on the World Cup because tournament football, international tournament football, we always say, Michael, very different to elite club level football what part do set pieces have to play in that will they be more of a factor in the world cup than they are in the champions league in the premier league do they equate to a higher percentage of total goals probably will be more important yep certainly was the case at the last world cup uh, there were 70 goals from set pieces from the 64 games although that includes penalties that was more than the previous most uh, by eight uh, from 1998 world cup there were 62 the crucial thing I think there was that was the first VAR tournament. That was before there was VAR in the Premier League and maybe a couple of other major European leagues. I feel like a couple already had it in place by that point. But I think we definitely saw more penalties given for shirt pulls and that kind of thing. And it probably also meant that defenders had to behave themselves more in the box. So they were less good at blocking off and that kind of thing. So there was a period of adjustment. But I think international football in general... I think there's more time spent with teams kind of trying to get the ball into the box. I feel like there's less pressing. There's less emphasis on really cutting off the opposition, getting the ball from defence into midfield. And teams tend to sit a bit deeper, probably invite more pressure. There's probably more chance of free kicks being given, maybe 30 yards from goal, probably more chance of corners being given. So I, I think there probably is just more set-piece situations and of course it's probably easier to train as well when you have limited time on the training ground I mean you know particularly ahead of this World Cup the teams have barely got a week together before the start of the tournament I think it's probably easy just to practice set pieces a lot more than focus you know rotations and movement down the flanks or whatever so yeah I think set pieces probably will be really important. With that in mind I have uh, got access to World Cup data dating back to 1966 hmm. um, and while I don't have the necessarily the share of goals that were set pieces I do have the raw number of, of goals scored and I have the share of the total shots that were set pieces across each each tournament and it's probably an entirely futile exercise but I'm going to throw it out to you guys to see whether you can guess what was the highest share of shots from set pieces of all of the World Cup tournaments dating back so the highest share of shots from set pieces in a tournament. Throw, but basically, I suppose it's throw a number at me because I'm going to tell you anyway. Right. Well, instinctively, I'm thinking about the 1966 World Cup final where there were 403 shots, all of them <laughs> ridiculous efforts from like 40 yards with pretty much everyone standing still. So I'm thinking... High volume of long shots in particular equals small proportion of set-piece shots. Therefore, I'm just going to take that as gospel and say the most recent tournament had the highest percentage of shots from set-piece situations. Michael, any anything further to add? It's a pretty good logic, that. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to disagree, actually. <laughs> so, interestingly, 1966 had the third lowest share of shots from set-pieces, 18 the highest share of shots from set pieces across all World Cups dating back to 66 is the 1986 Mexico World Cup, 
as the the highest, followed by World Cup Italian ninety, um, just just under it at twenty twenty three point nine. Um, as, as I say, entirely futile exercise, but just thought I'd uh, throw that one out there. Also, I don't know whether this is we've got time for this, but in terms of the teams, the goals scored from set plays, so not necessarily the the tournaments, but who which teams had the the highest goals scored from uh, set plays dating back to that same period. England. England 2018, yeah, <laughs> um, had the joint highest. So there was there was four who have scored uh, six goals from set plays. And it's obviously going to be skewed by more games you play, the, the more you're going to score from set plays. But um, Brazil in 1970 also obviously won the tournament. Italy in 2006 also won the tournament. And Poland in 1974, just for good measure. Um, but yeah, England 2018 was, was definitely up there. Michael, the Mexico tournament, the Italy tournament being very high for set-piece shots. Are you thinking what I'm thinking there? I don't think I am thinking <laughs> what you're thinking. What I'm thinking was that had you not given a good argument for 2018, I would have. I genuinely would have guessed those tournaments just because the football was regarded as being quite bad, mm. you know, like defensive and boring and no creativity. What were you thinking? Well, I'm thinking, could we find out the average temperature per <laughs> of of the matches played per World Cup and see if there might be a link between high temperatures and a high proportion of shots from set-piece situations because in open play, everyone's knackered and can't be bothered to run. And if we can do that, and I'm jumping forward here, even more importance on them in Qatar, presumably, where I gather it's going to be quite hot. Yeah, and to take it further, less importance of them in the next Women's World Cup, which is taking place in Australia, New Zealand in their winter. I think some of the games in New Zealand are going to be about eight or nine degrees. I'm feeling a correlation regression analysis coming on and I am absolutely here for it. It's your second PhD paper. Um, <laughs> that's enough for this week. Um, great fun to chat set pieces with you guys. Such a, such a broad topic. I think we've covered uh, a fair amount of it. It'd be great to hear from, from you, the listener. If you have any follow-up questions, if you have any strong opinions about what we've said, please do get in touch. We love hearing from you. Uh, if there's any extra queries or questions that have been chucked up from this that could form a part or a full episode uh, in future weeks, then please do uh, let us know. You know where to find us by now. Otherwise, just make sure that you are reading everything that Mark and Michael and their colleagues are writing on The Athletic site. Sign up today, theathletic.com forward slash tactics will give you the best current offer to become an annual subscriber. This has been a discussion about set pieces. Uh, the non-sporting definition of that is uh, a passage or section of a novel, play, film or piece of music that is arranged in an elaborate or conventional pattern for maximum effect. I think by that token, you could argue that every podcast we do is a set piece situation. Join us again next week on the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic. <laughs>